hello there. My name is Chris Angel, and my pronouns are they, them. Welcome to Allyship is a Verb, the LGBTQ podcast that explores and humanizes practicing allyship for the LGBTQ community and beyond. Hi, my name is Mon Malanovic Gallagher, and I use they, them pronouns. Mon is a speaker and facilitator, among other talents and skills, who incorporates the LGBTQI plus community and mental health into their work as much as possible. They deliver workshops, speak at panel events, and run mental health peer support groups. Some of the topics they touch on are LGBTQI plus inclusion, intersectionality, redefining relationships, allyship, and community. We're virtually hopping across the pond, as they say. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, as Mon is currently living and working in the UK. Most of my guests so far are sprinkled throughout the States and Canada, so I'm grateful to expand on the geographical locations represented on this podcast. I'm now going to give you three questions to think about while you're listening, and three more after our conversation to offer prompts for self-reflection. Number one. Do I attend educational or speaker events for marginalized communities? Number two, have I thought about my identities recently and if they still fit? Number three, what kind of changes might I want to make to my relationships? How might I want to redefine them? And with that, here we go. I love how beautifully and quickly you say your last name. It's because I'm Polish. Oh. It's easy for me. Okay. <laughs> you identify as queer, non-binary trans, an immigrant, a parent, and an introvert. Can you briefly share what those identities mean to you? Sure. Well, there are quite a few, and um, I think there's a lot to unpick. And I think before we start unpicking those identities, I... I really, really, really appreciate that you ask uh, about identities because I think um, most of the time we are not asked. Personally, I've only been asked a handful of times and most of the time it was when I was dropping my child to nursery when they were very, very little and you had a small child ask, are you a mummy or a daddy or are you a boy or a girl? And, you know, it was refreshing and I think you asking this question is refreshing because a lot of the time our identities are being assumed for us and we're not asked it's not being checked in with us um well let's dive there let's dive there for a moment who's not asking you like who do you wish would be in conversation with you about that i think everyone <laughs> i think everyone who makes a difference in your life should ask the question um which is probably difficult like i asked my kid um whenever we fill in a form like um, a subscription form or child club form, you know, are you a girl or a boy? I ask her, she uses she, her pronouns, but I ask her, I check in with her. And partly I do that because I know that my own journey was not straightforward. I didn't arrive uh, at they, them pronouns immediately. My labels and identities were not aligned with how I felt inside. It was partly because I didn't have the language. I was born in Poland and Polish is a very binary language. So I was really, really restricted um, in finding the, the words that fit. 
but also because the society was imposing certain roles on me and no one was ever checking in when I was growing up. And similarly these days, I still most often am, be, am being taken for, you know, a butch lesbian, which, um, you know, I, I, don't, I do not identify with it. Um, for a long time, I did have to use the word lesbian because that was the only term available to me. I think the beauty about language developing and the beauty about people, younger and younger people, being able to experiment and explore their identities has to be reflected in how we approach people. We have to be asking those questions. So, you know, I do welcome when companies, for example, include questions about, you know, gender identity rather than the sex that you know, the, the sex marker that is on your on your passport and I do welcome questions around all kinds of responsibilities even that may form someone's identity like parenting do you have caring responsibilities like these questions are essential for you to understand what makes a person whole and what is important in your life and therefore you can relate to them better and you can create more um, genuine connections like for me, as someone who's trans and, and non-binary as well, it's scary for me to look for new housing, to look for a new job, anything medical related. And I worry that I don't always want to share with people how I identify because I don't think they'll always get it right. Also worried about them discriminating against me. Um I couldn't possibly know if, like, the staff are trained or not on that. And, mm -hmm. you know, especially with frontline staff, there's just so many people who could get that wrong, you know, answering the phone or when I walk up or, or anything like that. So I guess, are there times that you don't want certain people or people in certain positions asking you about your identities? Um, that's a very, very interesting question. I think there definitely was a time when I was very scared to admit even to my closest team and often even to my friends how I identify and what I feel inside. And I think um, a lot of people will um, identify with that fear. If you represent difference in any way in your life, um, you only really feel safe when you are among people who represent the same kind of difference. Diversity inclusion, or the, the diversity equity inclusion and belonging, um, you know, <laughs> initiatives are so difficult because realistically, if you go into any company, any organization, predominantly you will see uh, the workforce being white, uh, being cisgender, being um, straight or at least appearing straight. And so if you don't see yourself reflected in that community, um, it will be really hard for you to be your true authentic self. And we know that authenticity is so important in creating genuine connections. We know that it's so important in being given responsibilities, being trusted. It is time for another Chris Angel monologue. Oh, that was bad. All right, we're leaving it. Uh, a few things here, DEI, DEIB, Jedi, etc. work has the same challenge the broader LGBTQ plus community has. There are various initialisms and acronyms. As a review, initialisms would be DEI, DEIB, and an acronym is Jedi because you can say it like a word. 
The company is essentially showing a commitment to work such as diversity, equity, and inclusion. Other letters you may see are belonging, justice, culture, access, and anti-racism. These initiatives inform changes in policies, hiring practices, staff training, awareness events, and more. Items like pay equity and benefits, having diverse candidates in the hiring pipeline, and that there are marginalized identities holding leadership positions. What a concept, right? The last thing I'll say here, and that was sarcasm. I don't usually use it, but like that slipped out. So we're just, we're getting, we're going to leave it. But the last thing I'll say here is that companies are sometimes doing this work to quote unquote, encourage people to bring their full selves to work. Some people like a work-life balance or harmony and don't want to bring their full, whole, or true selves. I don't have the answers here, so I'm not necessarily disagreeing with Mon, but I would just like to recommend that folks weigh the pros and cons of this. I think all of this is incredibly complicated when we're working under systems like capitalism, white supremacy, and beyond. People sniff out um, that you're pretending very, very quickly um, and hiding who you are is a 24-7 job. There's no escape from it once you start. It's very hard to come out of the closet. Um, so uh, I think, I think uh, for a long, long time, definitely, I was, I was scared and I was um, avoiding questions. And if there was a diversity um, um, survey in the company, I would still not mark the answers according to who I was or who I, who I felt I was at that time. The more support network I built in my personal life, the easier it was for me to be more open externally outside of my safety bubble. Part of it was that I knew that I had people who would not drop me no matter what. And if my work didn't work out or if people in the office were, were not accepting of me, I would land on, on my feet and I will hit their ground running and I would find something else and I would have support. I think that's so, so important. Uh, and if we think about young people, for example, who are considering coming out, having that support from their family and friends is really, really important in how they how they develop as a human being and how how they move through the world in future um, as a, as a grown up. Um, and I think that's something that cannot be underestimated. You asked me if I'm ever scared about being asked that question, and I'm not. But that's because I I start the conversation by saying who I am. Uh, I no longer hide that part of me. Uh, so I will say, my name is Mon, I use they, them pronouns. And usually this prompts questions around my identity. And I do welcome that curiosity because without curiosity, there is no learning. And without learning, there's no understanding. And if there's no understanding, there could never be an acceptance. And if there's no acceptance, there's no inclusion. And so it goes, it's, a, it's an avalanche. Yeah, that spiraled very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I guess what I'm taking from this is let's ask. Let's ask people about their identities and also hold space that they may not want to share that with us. They may not be sharing the correct answers with us. And also think about what are we using that information for, right? I know that 
a lot of folks can relate to applying to a job and being asked those. Like, especially here in the States, they'll ask if you're a veteran, if you're disabled, if you need accommodations, things like that. But again, because of the fear, because of the stigma, because of the discrimination, all of those those things, people don't always answer those honestly. It, part of it, too, is just like wondering, what do places even do with this information? I don't want to be tokenized. And so I guess... Because of your unique position and the kind of work that you do, for those listening who see those and don't answer those honestly or skip them or or whatever, how might you encourage someone to understand perhaps the importance of that, of of sharing and and showing up authentically? And what what could that potentially lead to in, in terms of like, I guess, specifically with like a workplace? Uh, well, I would never, ever ever encourage anyone to share things that they were not 100% comfortable sharing. I think you need to be at the right place in your life and have the safety net in order to do that. Whenever you want to share something that is makes you different and can potentially put you at risk, it's so important to put your own safety first. And other people may think you're being unreasonable. Um, but it doesn't, it's not about them, it's about you. So, you know, you need to find that in yourself. If you're not comfortable with it, just don't do it. For people who are comfortable sharing their identity, who feel safe enough and are in that privileged space to do that, I think it's really important to do because A, you're showing other people that we exist. And if you do not see yourself represented somewhere, you cannot become and so it's really important to have that positive role modeling, um, to have that positive representation. And also in terms of companies, um, a lot of the time we hear companies saying, for example, with trans community, trans community is such a small community. There are so few people who are trans. Why should we make provisions for trans people if we do not have anyone who identifies as trans in our company? Now, obviously, we know that, you know, if you do not create a space at the table for for a person to come, that person will never come. So if you do not create space for a community in your company, that community will never feel safe enough to truly be in your company. It it does not mean that the person representing that, that community will not join your company, but they will not show their authentic self. So you have to create that space for people to feel safe, to, to be themselves. And, and so that's important. We know that. And so companies should start doing that regardless of whether they have representatives of different communities within their workforce. But um, it does help to have those numbers. <laughs> As, as sad as it is, the way our society works, the way most corporations operate, you know, it's good to have those numbers. It's always most difficult to be the first one to come out and the first one to say, actually, I am that minority you were talking about that doesn't exist in your company. <laughs> but um, if you feel safe enough, if you're in a position of power where you can do that, then it is really, really important to to show that we are not, because we are not a small community as a trans community. We are, there's more of us and there, there always have been, but we just didn't feel safe to authentically show ourselves. I think that in itself will fuel that visibility. Visibility creates visibility. The more the more representation you have, the more people feel okay being themselves. And so the representation that you create 
when you're authentic in the office or in any space for that matter will help people ask the questions that they need to ask to make correct decisions for your community and for people who represent the difference that you do as well. There is a lot of talk about how people from certain communities should be put to the front and should be decision makers in uh, in relation to uh, the provision uh, that touches their community. Very often, uh, people in power do not see representatives of said communities in the group that makes those decisions. And sometimes it's difficult. It's, it's, it's such a strange thing to say. It's difficult to find find us uh, <laughs> and, and engage us. But if we are not authentic uh, in our workplaces, in our wider communities, then it will be difficult for people to find us uh, and to ask those questions and to make decisions that will not harm us. Um, so having that voice is really, really important. Yeah, and also not feeling like there is this burden that you have to like be tokenized or that you have to be the leader, that it's also just enough to be out, to show up, to exist. It's okay to say no to those kinds of opportunities if, I mean, I know certainly I've been in pools of, again, workplace scenarios where I was very upfront about who I was throughout the interview process, and then they had to take a hard look at their policies, at their onboarding procedures, and say, are we ready for this person to come on and like be in those conversations? And I was happy to do it, but like how nice it would be to also just show up at a job and not have to be tokenized or be that leader and just do the job I was hired for, which is funny now because now I'm an entrepreneur because <laughs> I think I just got tired of it. <laughs> but <laughs> it's, it's really interesting. But, it's yeah. really interesting how a lot of people who are from uh, the LGBTQI plus community um, often specifically look for organizations that are channeling uh, inclusion and diversity within the LGBTQ community, which is kind of sad because it puts all the pressure to, um, you know, drive the progress on, on ourselves. But also there is a lot of logic in it because organizations that um, focus on progressing, um, you know, um, representation and equality for LGBTQI people are safe spaces. <laughs> you know, they have thought about the provisions that we need as, as, as people in this community to, to be our authentic selves at work. And if we spend so much time at work, it is so important to not have to hide. And so it makes perfect sense. But all those, com uh, well, not all those companies, but a lot of those of those organizations are charities, which means that the salaries they pay also are not, you know, they are not banking salaries. <laughs> so, nope. you know, again, you, we're restricting ourselves, but we're restricting ourselves for safety, for the luxury of not having to hide any part of us, ourselves, for the luxury of just turning up and, and being without the burden, without the trauma, without having to relive prejudice and, and the propaganda that has been for years and years and years spread against us. Absolutely. And ooh, we took a journey. So we didn't talk about my identity at all. <laughs> yeah, no, especially since that was very important to you. Uh, we had started to, we had started to, and then we took this like, um, side quest, I guess you would call it in gaming. I don't know. I'm not really a gamer. 
But um, because there were so many identities that were important to share out, I guess starting with ones specific to either our community or the broader ones, um, whichever whichever place you want to start and help us uh, understand these identities and, and what they mean for you. Sure. Um, I think I'll start with queer. I'll start with queer because um, I know that still in the community, it's not a word that is accepted by everyone. I really strongly identify with this word, partly because it is gender neutral um, in my view. And so it fits very well with where I am in terms of both my gender and my sexuality. And I'm very much drawn to the power that comes from reclaiming words um, reclaiming slurs. And I think a lot of people in the community experience verbal abuse. Um, and I know from personal experiences that often when we are called names, it feels very alienating and we often can feel like we are at fault. And so reclaiming those words can be incredibly liberating. In my view, because, you know, traditionally, well, traditionally, um, <laughs> it meant odd and weird and was used as a slur. I really, really like it as an alternative to the LGBTQI plus initialism because it kind of puts in a big bag everyone who is not cishet normative. And even these days, queer is um, a very activist word, I think is a very charged word. To me, it means people who are not just white, um, male, gay. Um, it means people who are uh, of color, people who are disabled, people who are neurodiverse, people who are homeless, people who do sex work. Queer is that word that encompasses all those odd and weird and beautiful who do not fit in the system, both with S-Y-S and C-I-S at the beginning. These days, I don't know what the situation is in the US so much, but in the UK, we've had lots of queer liberation movements and marches running alongside the gay pride um, celebrations. And they do have a much more activist feel as opposed to the commercial and local government approved and pretty and fun gay prides, there is still the need to reclaim and to fight and to include everyone in the rights that we have achieved in the US and the UK. You know, I come from Poland. Poland is such a interesting country. Um, <laughs> a lot of the municipalities in Poland have claimed to be LGBTQ-free zones. I know from a personal experience that if I go back to where my parents are, to my home country, I will not be able to be as out and as open and to live as freely as I do here in the UK. And I do not belong there because of that. And so the queer label really fits because it brings in me that need to make sure that my siblings in Poland and in Russia and anywhere else in the world where LGBTQ rights have not gone as far as here, that we fight for them, that they are not forgotten, and that they can also aspire and, and see that you know we can live and we can thrive. So um, that's very important for me. And I think that's what queer means to me. And that's why it fits so well. How about for non-binary and trans? Oh, gosh. Where to start? Well, Polish language does not really have... Well, Polish language is developing. 
but when I was a young person, there wasn't language I needed to describe myself. And for a long time, I was a tomboy because I was a person born in a female body who who did not really identify as a girl, but there was no words to describe it. There was no option. Today, we usually say things like assigned female at birth, shortened to AFAB, or assigned male at birth, AMAB. We might also say that we were socialized as a particular gender. However, I will never tell a trans or transgender person which language to use for them. And I will say that broadly for the larger LGBTQ plus community. However, it is important that people from outside the community use the most appropriate language as much as possible. Context matters, and there's definitely more nuance here. And for a long, long time, I had a problem with the trans label, partly because there's so much trauma attached to to the label. There's so much prejudice against trans people in the wider society, um, particularly trans women, but um, trans community in general as well. And then also there is this um, assumption that is prevalent both in the wider society and within the trans community that you have to be trans a certain way. <laughs> that there, there is this image of a trans people that a lot of people will have in their head when they think trans. Um, a lot of people will not think that they are trans enough. Um, I volunteer with this amazing little charity that supports LGBTQI plus people with their mental health. It's called Mind Out UK. And we have a lot of people come and say, well, I'm not what my birth certificate says I am, but I also don't think I'm trans because... And, and sometimes... Obviously, no one can put a label on you. You have to feel comfortable with the label. But a lot of the time, people will not want to um, associate with a trans label because they fit somewhere in between. And for me, trans is anything that isn't cisgender. That's where trans starts. And it goes all the way to the binary trans where someone feels like, you know, they're at the exact opposite of their gender marker on sex marker on on on, on their documents uh, or their documents at birth and i think it's really important for non-binary people to associate themselves with a trans label also for the reasons of bringing on change because we are not a small group more and more people are more open to um, experimenting and exploring gender and playing with gender and being freer in their gender expression and their gender identity and the more people claim or associate themselves with the trans label the greater power we have the more of us there you know we are a force to be reckoned with and those little quarrels within our community that you're not trans enough or you know you haven't gone through that procedure this procedure whatever else it's not helping us as a community but it's also not helping the society to reframe what trans is you know that you don't have to be a certain way that trans is not the person who well of course it, it is a person who has gone through medical uh, transitioning and social and legal but also it can be anyone else who has not gone through all or or any of those stages. Um, and the transition does not make a person trans. What makes a person trans is how they feel. 
I think this is something that we need to try to reframe in our wider consciousness and the more non-binary people reclaim and associate themselves with the trans label, the better for everyone. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because there can be a lot of gatekeeping within our community. You know, I, I love that you're encouraging folks to adopt that identity if that resonates with them. And I know there's going to be plenty of non-binary people who don't want to, and that's okay, and that's valid, because it's about choosing those labels or those identities or the terms or language or whatever, right? Whatever we want to call it that works for you. We'll be right back after this break. Do you struggle with pronouns and how to use them? Did someone recently come out to you with a new-to-you pronoun set and you have no idea how to practice? Maybe you just aren't sure what to do if you misgender someone. You can take my online pronouns course. Self-paced and pay what you can, it's been helpful for folks wanting to do better. Read the reviews for yourself. You can find it at lgbtq.school. Thank you for listening. And now back to the learning. I'm actually curious if you've heard this one. Um, there's some folks who have been gatekeeping around nipples. Like, you're not non-binary if you keep your nipples, if you have top surgery, for example. And when I heard that, I don't know, maybe a year ago or so, I was like, excuse me? Like, we're gatekeeping nipples? Like, what? Like, so I know, I'll, I'll just also just to, to make this a little bit bigger. Sometimes folks lose their nipples in surgery for whatever reason, because something can just happen, it rejects, whatever. Um, so something like that can happen, and that's valid. Um, there's also folks where maybe they're not even non-binary, but just aesthetically for whatever reason, maybe they didn't want to deal with any potential complications, or they just didn't care about that, like... It was more important for them to have, you know, a flat chest or, or something like that. But to say, no, like to be non-binary, especially if you're going to have top surgery, you have to like do without the nipples. Just what? why are we being so gatekeepy? It's just, I think it's just really unfortunate. It's one thing to have discourse like you're talking about and have disagreements, but it's another to just say, like, nope, this is the marker, this is the benchmark, this is the milestone, you have to do, like, no, we don't. I'm happy with my nipples, thank you very much. I'm not getting <laughs> rid of them because of some gatekeepers. So, yeah, I took you on a big journey there, and, and the folks listening, but has, have you heard of that? I have not heard of nipple gate gatekeeping, but <laughs> I am not surprised at all. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'm not surprised at all. I think I think the important thing is that we are all individuals and regardless of how we want to be trans, non-binary, gay, queer, bisexual, pansexual, whatever uh, your identity is, just, you know, if it feels right for yourself, then that's the most important thing. And we have too many standards put on us in terms of beauty, body size, you know, how we move through the world, what mannerisms we have. Uh, and actually, we don't need any of this. I can, I can really see how this can create lots of anxiety and lots of mental health issues for people because we all want to be accepted and we all have the same needs. 
But one of the most important needs is that if you accept yourself and if it works for you, then there will always be someone who will find you beautiful and 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 uh, you know appreciate you for who you are. My grandma used to say that you know um, don't be afraid to be a monster. There is a witch waiting for you. And I think that's the best <laughs> saying. It, it it kept me through my teenage you know years when I was worried about really odd things um, <laughs> in terms of my looks uh, and and I think that's that's something that we have to remember you know as long as it feels right for yourself it doesn't matter you know you yourself know that you're trans or non-binary or, or queer and, and you don't have to look the part you look the part because this is who you are I always yes. say that <laughs> I, I had I had a situation recently when when someone on the street um, called my clothes queer, no, sorry, they used gay, um, and I think this is a common slur, common common way of trying to offend queer people. And I turned around and said, "Well, yes, of course. I mean, my clothes will be gay because I'm queer. Like you know, this, they are gay because I'm that way, and, and and that's that's fine. And I think I like turning those little things into." patting someone on the shoulder and saying, there, there, you've seen me, well done. <laughs> uh, we, we don't need any of, of that gatekeeping. Um, it's, it's a bit sad, but not surprising. Yeah, we'll, we'll tackle that at some point, right? Um, so yeah, we've, so we've touched on queer, we've touched on non-binary trans, we touched a bit on immigrant because you shared a little bit about your story and talking about like Poland and how the language is evolving, but also it's been pretty binary, things like that. So I guess thinking about you being introverted, something, you know, that's really cool about you is we do some similar work. And so being an introvert, like having that intersect with these other identities you carry could potentially make certain situations challenging for you in different ways. I'm wondering how does this impact your work as someone who regularly speaks and facilitates conversations? How does that show up for you? Is there anything you have to work through? Networking. <laughs> I often I often worry um, at big event big events, and obviously the recent pandemic and the fact that we we've well a lot of us. Um, I had the privilege of working from home um, and seeing people selectively uh, obviously reduced that. But big events are definitely a, an issue, and I often worry where do the silent queers go because um, it's 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 hard to see us. Yeah, especially when I think of Pride, and if it's anything, because I've never been to Pride outside of the states, and I've mostly been to Pride in various parts of California, both Northern and Southern, but Pride has become this very commercialized, big, loud event. And there's usually a lot of alcohol. There's like different dance floors for different music genres. Um, and so, yeah, it's when I think of something like accessibility and Pride isn't always accessible to everybody, what I'm hearing is like being able to have a space where if you're overstimulated or if you're overwhelmed, you can have a moment to like recoup. Maybe there's like, I don't know, a tent of beanbag chairs spaced out. And if you need a little nap or something, you could just sit there, curl up into your, you know. So I guess what would that look like for you at a big event? Is it that there is a dedicated space that you know that you can go to that's quiet? Or what would make that, what would make big events more accessible for you? 
There is very rarely such provision. And I know that more and more companies or organizations um, and events are planned around people who, for example, are neurodiverse and provide sp spaces for people to just uh, remove themselves from the general um, situation when they feel overstimulated. Um, one thing that it definitely has been my hack is having an anchor. And I never go, I never used to, well, I don't go now because of, of the situation still, but I never used to go to events without a, a person who was my anchor. Um, and I think something that is really important for me in, has always been very important in my life is that um, often there is no dedicated space unless you want you go to a toilet, which may not always be the place you want to go to. But a person can also be a safe space like this. Uh, and sometimes for me personally, especially when I get um, very anxious around crowds, is either being able to hold someone's hand or just hug for a moment or just knowing that they are next to me and that if I need an exit, they will make the excuses for me or they will cover for me or they will drag me out. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's, that's yeah. something that has been my, my hack. But I think um, being an introvert is, is, is not all about not being able to socialize, obviously. We all know that introverts do that, and quite successfully too. And many speakers, many many famous speakers have been introverts because it's so, so different when you have to um, socialize and network with a group of people uh, to when you just avoid the crowd and hop on the stage, deliver your, your, your speech and then leave. You know, it's different. Right. So we, we do those things quite successfully and quite happily most of the time. Um, yeah. So I think it's finding, finding your way uh, in the world and your, your little solutions and hacks, um, but also having people around you, especially if you are in a situation where you, where, when you are delivering a, a talk or being part of a panel discussion, if, if the organizers know that you have certain requirements, very often people are happy to facilitate um, a corner of, of, of the room where you can just sit or stand facing the, the, the wall <laughs> for a moment or have your headphones yeah. on, you know, on and, and, and listen to some calming music. There are ways to overcome stressful and overwhelming situations like that. And the more people know about it, the more you are likely to have that facilitated for you and, and, and be helped through the process and it's not to say that you're in any way incapable of 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 being su successful or of, of um moving through the world in a in a friendly and and welcoming and uh, open manner but it just means that you do not have to stress quite so much your anxiety will be leveled or lowered because you know that you have those points of access where you can easily either retreat quickly or, or or just find some some space to uh, recharge your batteries and and that's often what it is you know just recharging your battery batteries often doesn't take that long either in terms of being a, a, a person within the community definitely a lot of our support um, networks revolve around loud places around uh, social places, as you say, alcohol and uh, and often other substances. This is definitely something that has been 
terribly affected by the pandemic and a lot of our siblings have been removed from their support networks. The good thing that's coming out of the pandemic is there seems to be more focus, at least here in the UK, at creating spaces that do not revolve around the pub and club culture quite so much. Um, So people will meet for walks or, um, you know, do something that is not related to, to partying necessarily. And it in itself can be more inclusive because there are more options and people of different abilities, people who are on the neurodiverse spectrum, you know, can relate to to, to more of those activities and find that support network and, and that chosen family as well, especially in places that are not like London or New York where, you know, smaller, small, smaller locations where, where there may not be necessarily uh, a wide network available. I love what you said about having someone as an anchor because I've totally done that without naming it, right? Like I've, there's some social event or something that I wanted to go to and I'm like, oh, you have to be there, please. I can't go without you. But what I'm really <laughs> saying is I need you to be my anchor. And I think now that you've just given me that beautiful language to use, I think it also helps me set up the person too, right? To say like, this is like how I'm going to need you to show up for me. Like, do you feel like that's something you can do? Because I don't think I really made that clear <laughs> to the people before. <laughs> like, I need you there to calm my nerves. <laughs> I need you there because I'm going to be stressed. Or, um, But I, I love that. So that that's how that's, yeah, landing for me. I love how a lot of our um, relationships in the LGBTQI community revolve around boundaries and around consent uh, and I think finding the language as you say being able to name who that person is for you even if it's just temporarily for one event uh, or or long term whatever having having those words help us define our boundaries and and ask for consent and and define how we move through the world together um, and and this is something that is very very interesting in the queer community and I, I will repeat that in here when I say queer I mean the whole beautiful spectrum of, of the LGBTQI plus community um, because we do a lot of the time have to specify our boundaries quite clearly and we have to ask for consent and it's historical like you know you had to kind of navigate that in a very very subtle way um, and being in the world in a very subtle way so I think in a way it's something that we've inherited from all the queens and kings that came before us and it's something that often defines our relationships that often is lacking elsewhere i will risk that um, massive assumption (laughs) one of the topics that you talk about is redefining relationships how do we queerify our relationships i'm so glad you asked this um (laughs) i think i think it does slightly um follow up from what we said about consent and boundaries uh, but I think one of the beautiful things about uh, queer relationships is that we do not have a blueprint. Um, and we do have to, we, we enter relationships with uh, a great unknown ahead of us. We don't know how the roles will pan out and how we will 
define our roles within each relationship. Um, and often for people who have had multiple partners, either simultaneously or in a uh, succession, each relationship will have a different layout in terms of how the people involved played together and how what roles they they took um you know who cooked who cleaned who took the children to the to the to, to school and who i don't know took the dog to the vet i don't know basically we we do not have those predefined roles you know who earns money and who who stays at home and often there are situations where we 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 do fall into those "Quote unquote um, heteronormative um, relationship styles, which I hate. Uh, I hate that ter- term because anything a queer person does cannot be heteronormative. You know, we are not replicating heteronormative um, lifestyle. We are building the lifestyle that feels right for us. But I think that's the the beauty of of queer relationships is that we are in constant conversations. When you enter a queer relationship, very often you're like, well, so what What are you into? And, I, you know, what are you into in, in general? Like, seeing the big picture so that we can navigate together and, and build that th- those roles around what works for each of us. This is something that um, straight and cis uh, relationships can definitely benefit from as well. This is something that has been incorporated into um, ethical non-monogamy, for example, the asking questions, the redefining your boundaries and, and setting boundaries, asking for consent, um, you know, opening up to the wider world and, and you know, having beautiful constellations um, of relationships. But also, this has been brought into ethical monogamy. Um, so something that um, really struck, struck a conversation the other day with me and some of uh, my colleagues was, what is ethical monogamy? Um, why do we not talk about ethic, ethical monogamy? It's because when we think about monogamy, it's the thing that we have been taught is the pre-described, the preferred form of relationship. But in reality, um, that monogamy is very narrow. Um, it does not allow for those conversations. Typically, you just follow a certain route, and that's that. Ethical monogamy brings those questions and those defining boundaries and that consent and playing with your roles and is a choice. So if you have explored various options for your relationship um, and various setups that your relationship can take and then you set for a closed monogamous relationship and you have those conversations and you take into consideration what works for you but also what works for your partner that is ethical monogamy it's it's taking all the beauty from the queer relationships from the ethical non-monogamy back into what used to be a very oppressive system, really. If you think of it, if you think about the the oppressive uh, historical beginnings of monogamy, it's not a nice setup. But you can make it beautiful and, and really liberating by incorporating all those practices that make it much more consensual and much more um, individual-oriented and supporting growth. I've never heard of someone talk about ethical monogamy. I've only heard about it as ethical 
non-monogamy. And I recently was talking to someone who identifies with ethical non-monogamy, but also shared about how, why do we have to double down on that? It's because we're fighting against those preconceived notions, right? It's like, oh, you're just like sleeping with whoever and like, there's no conversations and STIs are rampant, right? This is what people can think if they don't know about it. So it's like interesting that the language has had to evolve to include ethical to just double down on. No, this is a beautiful thing. This is a consensual thing. There's conversations that happen. There's different, you know, setups in terms of families or dating situations and who's dating who, if you're dating multiple people, whatever. There's there's just like a whole world out there. So I think the last thing I'll say on that part in particular is I think it'll just be interesting to see how it evolves over time. And if at some point we're able to finally drop the ethical part, not because I don't think that's a good word, not because I don't think that's important, because it's just that for me, it feels redundant. Yeah, I, I, can, I can understand what you're saying here. I think uh, it's, it's a bit worrying that we have to use that and stress that it's ethical. But also I think people do have... Um, an inner need to identify outside of the oppressive systems that they were brought up in. When you talk about non-monogamy with people who are uh, traditionally monogamous, and sometimes when you talk about monogamy with people who are non-monogamous, there are uh, very often the same arguments being used against each. So people will say that people who are monogamous lack the uh, growth and the maturity to have proper conversations and to define what makes them happy in a relationship. But monogamous people will use the same argument against non-monogamous people and they will say, you're not mature enough to be monogamous, to be, to be loyal to only one person. And I think the setup you have in your relationship has nothing to do with your maturity necessarily. It's about what works for you and for your partner. It's, it's a conversation between the people involved and no one else can really judge or, or, or voice their opinions because that doesn't matter. What matters is that whatever works for the couple or, or the triad or whatever, you know, whatever constellation you are in, that's the most important thing. And, and we all navigate. And yes, in any setup, you will have people who will not respect rules or who will not respect boundaries. But overall, these people are a minority, um, you know, and people want to be happy. So we have to make sure that they are allowed to be happy the way that that, that works for them, which is so would be so nice if young people these days were taught about not only how to not get pregnant, but also how to make themselves and their partners have a fulfilled relationship. Yeah, I don't know. So yeah, it's not even necessarily having to drop like the ethical part necessarily, because again, this is all just sort of, you know, me thinking out loud. But, you know, maybe it's something that also gets reclaimed like queer or who, who knows? But I love that there's all these options and I love that there's more language and there's just all these conversations happening, you know, like it's curious that we don't talk about it as like polyamory, like we're we're choosing to use in this conversation monogamy and non-monogamy. Sometimes we can make mistakes when it comes to allyship. I'm wondering what's something you wish you had done a better job of in the past and what's something you do differently now? One of the things that I'm probably most 
I wouldn't say ashamed necessarily, although it's very close to that word. I'm definitely really, really not proud of forgetting there are many people living within the intersections of various identities. And I have in the past definitely shown allyship to a group of people in a way that automatically was not allyship towards a different group or people who lived within intersections of various groups. And I think that's something that has been a journey. Uh, I'm definitely much more thoughtful um, about that. And I think one of the things that is really important for me in allyship is taking a step back uh, when you're presented with an issue with with a um, support issue, for example, when someone asks you to provide them with, with support or um, to stand up for them, it's really important for me to take a step back and see how that act will uh, not only affect them, but also how that act may affect other people who are also from within marginalized communities because it's not something that most of us do on purpose, but it's very easily done. And so making sure that you choose your language and you act in a way that will not erase or not discriminate against other communities is really, really important. Um, and that often takes, um, you know, doing all the learning uh, and actually researching and asking questions because you cannot be an ally to one group of people. If you want to be a good ally, you have to be thoughtful and you have to be encompassing all the different identities. There's no standing up for one group and not standing up for another. That's not how inclusion works. If you can find something online, just go online. You don't have to um, feed on people's trauma. You don't have to feed on uh, things that are really private um, for just satisfying your nosiness, really. Um, but if this is something that would help you connect better and support that person better, then this is... This is probably something that will a lot of people will welcome. Knowing that coming out isn't just one time, like some people can think it is, what's one question that you wish people would stop asking you? And what do you wish people would ask instead? Yeah, um, I think uh, whenever I whenever I say my name, Whenever I um, admit that I'm non-binary, a lot of the time people will ask, oh, so is your name, was your name this? And they try to guess what my name was. And I think that's something that really doesn't have to happen. I also, something that is not necessarily a question, but um, I've had it done to me before, people who have known me before I changed my name and, um, you know, will will introduce me by saying, oh, this is Mon, I've known them since they were this age and, and they were going by that name, then it's really, why? <laughs> it's not necessary. Uh, when I say that I'm a parent, a lot of people will will ask how that happened. 
um, they will ask all kinds of invasive questions about test tubes or donors and or, or whatever. And again, I think I think the the important bit is that I've got a child. Um, you know, I'm in a queer relationship. I'm non-binary trans. But how all this happened is is really not necessary to disclose and, and ask about. I think what I would like people to ask more is especially if they struggle with pronouns and I know that for a lot of people they them is a problem because it is a plural don't you know <laughs> uh, I think I would like people to to ask more about so could you just give me an example how to use your pronouns correctly so I don't get them wrong and if they then follow and um, stick to whatever they were told or, or, or shown um, you know that is showing me that they have enough care and in, and enough attention and they really want to um, make me feel seen and I think that's that's really really great because a lot of people shy away from that particular question and especially with some of the neo pronouns which may be more um, difficult for people to get used to because they may not be used as often um, they may have not come across certain neo pronouns enough and asking how you can make someone feel visible, make someone feel seen, make someone feel appreciated for who they are. Those kind of questions are definitely really, really beneficial and, and welcome. And I would like people to ask those more. What's one allyship tip you'd like for everyone listening to consider? A good ally is always there to stand up and show up when you need them to, but does not take up the space for the representatives of a marginalized community, knowing that it is not your space to talk over or voice opinions uh, about the experiences of a community that you're trying to support. It's really important because allyship is not a badge. You can't just say, I'm an ally and therefore I have that right. You don't. Allyship is the, the things you do, but they have to really serve the community you're trying to work with, representatives of said community, and making sure that you do not overstep that and you do not take that, that space up and that you put them to the front um, is really, really important. Well, we took some interesting turns in our conversation, and I am so grateful to Mon for making the time and working across time zones so that we could have this rich conversation. Here are three more self-reflection questions before you go. Number four, do you think you could be an anchor for someone if they needed that? Number five, have you ever thought about what you might need in a space or at an event to be more comfortable? Number six, do you know when to stand in front of, next to, or behind marginalized communities? Thanks again for listening, and please, if you get anything from this podcast and my guests who are on, I'd really appreciate you giving it a review on Spotify, Apple, or Good Pods. See you next time. Visit allyshipisaverb.com for any resources and a full transcript of the episode. And remember, sometimes allyship means not talking over marginalized communities. <laughs>